Hallelujah. Okay. Oh, thanks, guys. You've already started for me. So, for the past oh, few weeks, we've been going through a series, God Is. We've still got one more next week. Uh, so what have we done so far? We've done God is just. We've done God is uh, faithful. And what was last week? Holy. holy. God is holy. This week, we're going to be doing... Oh, come on. Oh, I have to turn this on, don't I? Hallelujah. God is sovereign. So, uh, one of the emphases... Did I say that right? One of the emphases we've been placing upon this series is the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Now, if we just know about God, it leaves us room to misinterpret God, doesn't it? We can go to church sometimes, we could even read the words sometimes, or we might have a, a Christian witness in our life or something like that. We can, maybe we went to Sunday school when we were a kid, but if we just know about God, then that leaves us room to misinterpret God. Because it's easy to misinterpret someone when you don't have a personal relationship with them, isn't it? But if you, have, uh, if you know God personally, then it allows us to be influenced by what we know about him. Try being in a deep relationship with someone and to not be affected at all. Try it. I, I don't know if anyone can do that. I can't. So, today we're talking about God is sovereign. And... Uh, I think God's sovereignty is, it's a very hotly debated topic uh, between, you know, theologians and atheists and all those kinds of people, professors that think they know what they're talking about, but um, sometimes just stick to your field. Um, If we misinterpret God's sovereignty, we're going to have a problem with one of two things, generally speaking. We're going to think that either God maintains absolute control which would mean that we don't have free will. And so how many things do we see going wrong in the world today? That must be God's fault. Or, like some people, and some Christians tend to think this, God is indifferent, or he just doesn't really care. He he could act if he wanted to, but maybe he just won't because... You know, that's sometimes what our personal experiences seem to tell us. We, we pray for something to happen and we pray and pray and pray and God just doesn't come through. And then we say, oh, well, God didn't want to or it wasn't God's will or something like that. We tend to make up all sorts of excuses in our mind to reconcile the idea and we tend to be right in our own eyes. Or maybe we just think God can't do it. So, if we doubt his ability, then obviously God lacks sovereignty. And if we think that God lacks sovereignty, then we're going to try and maintain control of everything in our lives. And if we doubt his goodness, because we're thinking that he controls everything, so we're thinking that he's causing all the evil that's happening in the world today, then we're going to hate God. And you know, lots of people that I've met that say they don't believe in God, I've found that they actually do. They'll admit it in their sentence, they just don't realize they admit it because they think that God let them down. So they'll say something like, um, oh, well, God let me down. Um, He just decided not to do something, so I don't believe in him. You actually said in the first part of your sentence that you did believe in him. You just don't want to. 
So you're trying not to, but you can't help yourself. Lots of people can't help but believe in God, and they try and convince themselves that, you know, I'm an atheist or something like that. So this leads us to a question that has raged for centuries. Has anyone ever seen this before, the great paradox of God? If God is all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And if God is all powerful, then he cannot be all good. Seems like a fair enough statement. This statement, you know, supposedly tearing down the very idea of either God at all or a a good and holy and benevolent God, it begins with an incorrect presupposition. And that means that power must mean absolute control so that we don't have free will, and that good means never letting anything bad happen ever. Yeah, there we are. That's, that's what that statement begins with, and that's the problem with that in the first place. So that's a, not just an incorrect statement because it's incorrect. The meanings of the words are wrong. So I'm going to quote uh, a man called Lecrae. He's a, he's a Christian hip-hop artist. He's got a PhD. So uh, when I found that out, the article was like, Dr. Dre, meet Dr. Cray, and, you know, I thought that was pretty hilarious. But uh, there's this one song that he has, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's basically apologetics with a beat. That means explaining Christianity and providing arguments. And and it was kind of funny, and Lecrae was talking about, um, you know, what if you think God should wipe out all evil? You know, if there is evil in the world, why does God just let it happen if he's all good? And the approach that he took was he said, okay, maybe you want God to cut out all the murderers. But what's really good in the first place and what's really bad? See, if you're going to cut out all the liars, uh, sorry, all the murderers, what about all the liars? Because that's still bad. What about our evil thoughts? That's still evil. So where do you stop? The murder level, the lying level, or the thinking level? See, we've got to be consistent. We don't get to pick and choose. If we want God to wipe out all evil in the world, that means he's going to wipe out you and me. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ came and died for us and took away all sin and rose again that we could be children of God if we so believed in him. Hallelujah. Yous are awake. So, what about some people take the approach, but I'm a Christian. I can understand the people that don't have Jesus, you know, they go through suffering, they go through pain, they experience evil, but what about me? I've got God in my life, I shouldn't have to experience suffering. First of all, the Bible never says that anywhere. Second, it actually kind of describes suffering as a privilege. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Sounds a bit harsh, God, doesn't it? Why should I have to suffer? Why has it been granted to me not just to believe in Christ but to suffer for him? Long story short, we live in a world full of suffering and people don't know Jesus and they're suffering. I would not be able to empathize with someone who doesn't know Jesus if I can't understand what they're going through. If, if he's going through suffering and I 
don't know how to suffer because God took it all away. I'm not going to be able to love him. I'm just going to be some Christian in la-la land in my big Christian bubble. I'm going to be off with the fairies. And Christians will not be able to go and change the world because you don't change what you don't understand. Now, I understand there's a difference between suffering uh, that you put on yourself and suffering as a result of what's happening in the world. I get that. And suffering that you put on yourself, you know, self-induced suffering, that's the kind of suffering that God wishes to take away from us. That's called the renewal of the mind. When God, when we obey God and walk with God, he begins to take off these insecurities one by one and then things just seem to get lighter and we enjoy God more and all these kinds of things. We experience less suffering, but we're not going to be able to escape, you know, oh, I just lost my friend, they just passed away or something like that, or, or this person's going through this. You've got to be able to empathize with that person. You've got to be able to feel their pain. Otherwise, we would not be able to love other people. We wouldn't even be able to love God. We would break all of God's commandments as soon as we accepted our lives and, and, and gave our lives to Jesus. It would be the biggest contradiction of a life that you could ever have. And we would be, as Paul says, the most pitied of all people. So, it has been granted to us to suffer. Hallelujah. Okay. So, in conclusion, sovereignty does not mean that God controls everything, i.e. our free will, nor does it mean that he is not all-powerful. But I propose that God is all-powerful and all-good. So, that is my introduction. We're going to get into the Word now. Hallelujah. Are you ready? It's sometimes good just to clear up misinterpretations, just so that we're all on the, the same page and we can all look at you know, the text with the appropriate lens. Hallelujah, are you with me? All right. Can we please turn to Genesis 1, 26 verse 31. And I don't have it up there, so if you have your Bibles, please go to it. What does God's sovereignty look like? When we started talking about this a month or two ago, um, Pastor Steve said he gave me the topic of God is sovereign because he wanted to challenge me. And he goes, where's the first place in the Bible that you can think of where God reveals his sovereignty? And I was just being cheeky. And I said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we had a bit of a laugh about that. But I am actually going to chapter one, but we're not going to talk about that. I still believe that's the first place God reveals his sovereignty. So, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Everyone say image. If after our likeness, everyone say likeness, and let them have dominion, everyone say dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill, everyone say fill the earth and subdue it and have, everyone say, dominion. dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Hallelujah. Now there's a couple of words um, I really want to draw out and I got you to repeat some of them. So the word for image is called selem. And I mean, the, the, the two that really stuck out to me the most were representative figure and shadow. I thought they were really cool, and I'm going to draw that out a little bit more throughout the message. And the other word, fill, you know, go and multiply and fill the earth, is more law. And the A's are meant to have little accents above them, but I'm a rookie at technology, and I don't know how to do that, so it just looks like mala. So it means to fulfill, accomplish, replenish, you know, cover and bring goodness to, that kind of stuff. So moving on. So why did God give man the garden? What's the purpose of the Garden of Eden? So as man multiplies, you know, as you know, Adam and Eve have children and they have children and all that kind of stuff, they're able to handle the garden and the garden will grow proportionately to the number of people who are able to tend it and to cover the whole earth. So covering the whole earth in trees, in, in plants, in, in fruit, in, in the benevolence of God. And this was to obviously cover the whole earth and to provide for all of the animals and to bring good to them, to feed them. So God's plan for mankind, for the animals and for the earth was to, was to uh, bring benevolence in that way. And mankind shared everything with the animals. All the food that man had, the animals also had, all the shade, all the plants, everything, they all had the same thing. But one thing that separated man from the animals was that we were made in God's image and we had relationship with God. We had a deep, personal relationship with God, not like the animals. And so the garden would teach man about God in the way things work. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul says that uh, creation declares the glory of God. It reveals who God is. It, re- it reveals what he's like, his nature. And so that was what that was intended to do. As man works the garden and figures out how things work and the purpose of all the different things, it would reveal to them what God is like. Because it's one thing for me to tell you all the things about me, but who really wants to do that? But, through experience and through purpose and by spending time with God. And as God teaches them about the garden as well, would they come to know God on a deeper level? That's what it was for. And I was just saying to Hannah last night, the more I look at you know, what God was doing before the fall of man, I just get so angry with Adam and Eve because I just want to go back there because it just looks so fun. And so what I'm really talking about now at the moment is man's sovereignty over the world, not God's sovereignty. So what was the nature of man's sovereignty over the world? It did not encroach upon the free will of the animals, first of all. 
Man did not have any say in what the animals wanted to do. But, you know, in a sinless world where everything is herbivores, that wouldn't have been a problem. That was all good. And so free will was a really wonderful thing. It's become a little bit more twisted now. God worked, the, the, the sovereignty worked for the good of man, animals, and the earth. And it brought, brought provision and life. And by the way, guys, when I say life, I'm not just talking about living, breathing, hey, I'm alive or I'm surviving or something like that. I'm talking about real abundant life where you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground and you say, thank you, Jesus. Today is a beautiful day and good things are going to happen. And whether you're up or you're down, you're just thanking Jesus the entire time. That's the kind of abundant life I'm talking about. So how does this resemble God's authority? Remember before how I said our image, our representative figure, or our shadow. As we are in the likeness or the shadow of God, so is our ability to do things. God made us like him so that we would also do things like him. We are like God, but the difference is that we are finite and God is infinite. So we actually, essentially, when it comes to the garden and and man's sovereignty over the earth, we do it the same way that God would have done it because that's who God is, except we do it to a much smaller degree. Therefore, our sovereignty is limited, whereas God's sovereignty does the same thing, but not just with plants, people. He does it with infinite capability. God is sovereign with our family. If you've got issues in your family, just remember that Jesus is sovereign and ask him, to help you remember that. God is sovereign with your friends. He's sovereign with your vocation. He's sovereign with your education. He's sovereign with your incomes and your losses, your victories and your defeats. Come on, God is sovereign in every part of your life, your, your sickness, your health, whatever is in our lives, whether good or evil, pain or pleasure, God works for the good of those who love him. I've gone a little far. God is sovereign everywhere, but we must allow him to be sovereign in our lives, in every part of our lives. That trust is paramount. So, how are we doing? All right, we'll move forward. Can we please turn to Ephesians chapter 1? We'll start at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, pre-fall, you know, before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sin was introduced to the world, the garden was meant to cover the whole earth. That was God's plan. And then we have the introduction to sin. We turned away from God, which means we turned away from what was good and we turned towards what was not good. So we introduced sin. We introduced pain and death and all that kind of horrible stuff that we see. But even in spite of everything that's going wrong in the world and the introduction of brokenness, we have something even greater than the garden, which was a shadow of the real thing. God's plan has not changed. His sovereignty has not changed. But the way in which our plan is outworked has changed. We no longer fill the earth with plants, people. We fill the earth with Jesus Christ. There is sin, there is brokenness, death, there is spiritual blindness and oppression in all places of the earth because people don't know Jesus. The purpose of God's sovereignty is to lead us towards Christ-likeness that we may each have a deep personal relationship with God. That's God's sovereignty right there if you wanted to put it in a nutshell. It's so that we could know Jesus we can know God and we could become Christ-like more every day until we go to be with him in his kingdom. If we had to bring his sovereignty to the world through the gospel and making disciples, then Jesus must first be sovereign in our lives and in our churches. That means we've got to hand things over to him that we don't want to hand over to him because we think he's not going to do as good a job as we can do or we're afraid of doing something. Come on, Jesus knows where it's at. Jesus knows what you need. Some of it might be scary, but it's right. Can we all please close our eyes? If there is something in your life that you're not handing to God, something in your life that you don't want to submit to Him because... Maybe you don't want to change in that area. Then, my friend, you know what you've got to do. You've got to give that over to Jesus. You've got to let him be sovereign in that part of your life. If there is anything, then you need to make a willful decision. Don't just assume it's going to fall into place. Sometimes things do fall into place, but your heart remains the same. No, come on. God's sovereignty is that he would lead us all to Christ-likeness, that we would all be conformed to his image. What do you need to hand to God? If there is something you need to hand to God, I don't want to know what it is, but I want you to stand up right now. I want you to stand up right now. If you've got something in your life that you need to hand to God because you're not letting him be sovereign in that area, Thank you, Jesus. If you're hearing this for the first time, if you don't even know Jesus, then let me tell you, friend, you need him. 
You need him in your life. He's all you'll ever need. He's everything. He's more than you could ever ask or imagine. He fills our hearts. He makes us new. He takes away all of our sin. He took away all sin when he died on the cross. And he rose again so that we could become children of God. But like any gift, we've got to take it, friends. We've got to take it. It's free. That's the beauty of it. We don't have to do anything except believe and say it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.